Well, good morning. Great to see you. Let's pray. Father, we recognise your presence. We welcome you, Holy Spirit. I pray that my words would fall away and that, Jesus, you would speak into all of our hearts. We open our lives to you. Make us your people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to talk from Daniel chapter 4, and my title this morning is Transforming the Heart of a Nation. Transforming the Heart of a Nation. And really that springs, I think, from Daniel chapter 4. But how I want to speak, I hope, will not only be applicable uh, for us if we're thinking about a nation, but also thinking about us in our local communities and also thinking about ourselves as individuals living out our lives before God in our households. And what I'm going to hit is, uh, if we're thinking about transforming the heart of a nation, what are we transforming it into? What does it look like, first? Secondly, how are we going to do that? And thirdly, what I want to bring out of Daniel chapter 4 is one key virtue or characteristic that I think is absolutely key and instrumental towards how we can be part of what God is doing amongst us in this time. So that's what I want to do this morning. Looking at Daniel chapter 4 is an absolute miracle because Daniel chapter 4 really shows uh, how the uh, most influential Babylonian king essentially converts to God, the most high God, the Jewish Hebrew God. He converts in this chapter and chapter 4 is the last time we see Nebuchadnezzar but during this chapter what we have is the whole chapter split into three different parts. The first part, verses 1 to 18, is his own testimony, his own story of what happens to him. Then verses 19 to 33, we go into third person narrative where we're told about what happened to him from the third person and Daniel's part that he played. Then in verses 34 to 37, which Jim just read to us now, we're back in first person testimony. When I say testimony, what that really means is Nebuchadnezzar is describing what has happened to him. And right at the start of the chapter, he essentially proclaims to everybody in his kingdom to uh, verse 1 in chapter 4, all peoples, nations and languages that live throughout the earth. Everyone who his kingdom touches and is under his reign, he basically says, you need to know that the signs and wonders the Most High God has worked for me, I'm pleased to tell you about. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. And he goes on to describe what happens to him from his own story, and at the end of the passage finishes with worshipping the Most High God. And so when I, when I talk about transforming the heart of a nation, what we've got is a picture of the longest serving Babylonian ruler, 
who took captive the people of God, took them away to a polytheistic, foreign God-worshipping culture. And the final almost episode that we hear of Nebuchadnezzar is he is converted now and he has recognised that God is the true God and he sends that out to all, all the people in his kingdom and basically says, man, you know, out of all the gods that we previously worshipped and celebrated in the kingdom of Babylon, you need to know that there is one God above them all, the Most High God, and this is what he's done. And he subjects himself and lifts up his own worship of God. Now think about that for a minute, and let's apply that into our context. Can you imagine the ruling authorities in our country essentially writing to everyone in the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth and declaring that God is the most high God over all. This has happened in the past in the, in the history of our country, but can you imagine it happening again? Can you imagine those in civic authority in our local villages and surrounding areas telling everybody who lives here out of everything you believe, out of every single religion, out of every philosophy, out of every idea that you may have about God, the universe and all the afterlife, you need to know that there is a God above them all who we are calling you to worship. And when we talk about transforming the heart of a nation, this is the vision that I think God is calling us to have in mind when we think about the country and we think about the local communities and when we think about our own households. It's the conversion, the confession, the testimony of every heart to say, God, our God revealed to us, we would say, through Jesus Christ, he is the one true God above them all. Now, I, I talked a couple of weeks ago about how um, in the different models of the way that the church interacts with society, the model of a geopolitical theocracy is one thing that the disciples following Jesus were expecting him to do when he came into his kingdom, that he would you know, kick out the Romans from, from the land that they were living in, restore the kingdom to Israel, and there would be a, a physical, material, geopolitical ruling of God through them in the land. Now, that is going to be the reality when Jesus returns and he remakes the world, he remakes the heavens and the earth, and no more will, will there be opposition to his rule and his reign, and he will establish a theocracy. What that means is he will rule and reign over everything, and there will be no more opportunity for the presence of evil, for the presence of rebellion, for the presence of sin to exist any longer at that moment. But, but what I'm talking about that we see in chapter 4, that we see Nebuchadnezzar bringing his kingdom to confess, and what I think we've seen at times in scripture and through history, is what I'm going to say this side of Jesus returning, is the vision of a freely surrendered the theocracy. 
a freely surrendered theocracy. And when I think we're talking about transforming the heart of a nation, for me, when I think about our country, it is the free decision of those in authority and those being governed by the authorities to freely surrender to the lordship and rule and reign of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords that we would say is Jesus Christ himself. Now, before anybody loses the plot with, is that right? Let me just demonstrate why I think that is a biblical vision and then point to a few examples and then we'll jump into the passage and think about how that might happen. But just think about this for a minute. You know, when Jesus came and he walked among us in the Gospels, one of the key messages of his teaching was about the nearness of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. He applies this when he taught us to pray, as he taught his disciples in Matthew chapter 6, pray like this, may thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth, this realm, just as it is in heaven. And all of the blessings and benefits of the rule and reign of God, of peace which passes all understanding, of joy unspeakable, of endless abundant provision, of healing of disease, all of those things are after effects of the rule and reign of the king at the centre of the kingdom. So when we're praying for his kingdom to come and his will to be done, we're really praying that every heart would open up and freely surrender to the lordship of Jesus the lordship of the centre of the kingdom here on this earthly realm. We're, we're praying, may your kingdom, where every eye is fixed on the Lord Jesus and every one of his ways is perfectly displayed and manifested, we're praying that that would be what characterises life here on earth. Okay? Does that make sense? I can't hear you, so I pray that it does. Anyway. Um, let's think then about Matthew 28, 19. Do you remember those famous verses where Jesus says, go therefore to his disciples and make disciples of what? All nations, teaching them everything I've commanded you and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Spirit. So what Jesus is basically saying is, make disciples of all nations. What does that mean? What Jesus doesn't say is, make disciples of individuals out of every nation. What Jesus is basically saying is, make disciples, and what's a disciple? A disciple is a follower of Jesus. How you follow Jesus is you surrender your own life, you take up your cross to follow him. Make disciples of all nations. And so what, what Jesus is basically saying is, as I send you out, this merry band of fishermen and tax collectors and, you know, different, different people, as I send you out as a small band, the vision, the goal, is that every nation freely surrenders to, to the lordship that I've shown you, that I've demonstrated, that I've modelled. Every nation is to follow after me. And that isn't something that I'm going to force, but you are sent out to call people into that. 
Let me think about just one final place uh, biblically uh, about this kind of vision for a freely surrendered theocracy, a, a freely deciding to choose and to surrender and to follow the king uh, who is the Lord Jesus. Um, Revelation chapter 11 verse 15. Now I'm not going to get too far into end time stuff which we will encounter a bit towards the end of Daniel but in Revelation chapter 11 verse 15 what we have is the culmination of a series of trumpets being blown and declarations and things happening to earth from heaven. And what happens in Revelation chapter 11 verse 15 is that there's a cry in heaven and the cry is this. Voices in heaven ring out and they say, finally, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah. What Revelation 11.15 essentially says is the kingdom of earth, the realm of the creation, the place of earth has become the kingdom that is ruled and reigned by our Lord, the centre of it, King Jesus, with his authority given to him by the Father, Jesus the Father and the Spirit, that kingdom has become the kingdom of the world. Now, at that moment in Revelation, we haven't had the return of Christ and we haven't had the remaking of the heavens and the earth. That happens in chapter 22. But what has happened in this sense is that there has been a, an aligning with, heaven, with earth with heaven. So the kingdom of the world, where there is free choice to follow God or not, has aligned itself with the rule and reign of heaven. Now, I hope this makes some sense what I'm talking about. Let's just apply this a little bit. When Jesus says in Matthew 28 to a small band of men and women and he sends them out to go make disciples of all nations, it would have been astonishing to think in 300 short years that the Holy Roman Emperor, who was Constantine in the 4th century, would then do what Nebuchadnezzar does in this passage. He basically looked on at this spread and increase of Christian faith, the following of the way, the adoption of the kingship and lordship of Jesus. He looked on in the fourth century and he then institutionalized that right across the Roman Empire, which would have touched a bit like the Babylonian kingdom, the very ends of the known civilized world, according to what they knew at that time. Think um, about the times in history where governmental rulers have pointed to God and declared that he is the true king of all and led their nations in surrender to the Lord. This happened quite recently. Um, earlier this year, there was a gathering uh, across multiple stadiums in the nation of Brazil and loads of people came out, loads of young people and loads of churches. There were thousands of people crying out to the Lord. Um, and they set aside time to pray, to worship, to call out to God for their nation. And at the culmination of some of these events, the Brazilian president came onto the stage and he made the declaration, Brazil belongs to God. Brazil belongs to God. 
Now a cynic may say, was he, and a cynic may look at Constantine, was he jumping on the back of populism and essentially you know, using the groundswell of Christianity to support his own political you know, standing in the eyes of the nation? Well, who knows and who cares? But he said as a president, Brazil belongs to God. And I tell you what, when we think about transforming the heart of our nation, what we're really talking about is a moment where the authority put in place in our nation, and I would say crown, church and government, comes together in a unity that says the United Kingdom belongs to God. And I was praying, um, you know, just thinking about this, uh, and just thinking about our nation, and uh, you know, I was thinking, uh, I was just asking the Lord the question in prayer: What does that look like? And I was praying, and I, I, I was—I I basically felt from God that He just showed me a, a kind of vision or, or a picture of what that looked like. And uh, in this picture, it was like, you know, we we're all seeing footage at the moment of the ending of the Second World War. And, um, and in this vision or picture, it was like that, but it was the coronation of a king. And so it was like I was seeing the streets of London and there were people crowded onto the streets, um, just waiting for a glimpse of the king who was going to sweep by into Westminster Abbey to be crowned and, uh, and put in place as sovereign over the nation. And the streets were lined, they were packed with millions of people who come out for this. And the whole scene was full of excitement, full of wonder, full of you know, nervous energy, just expectancy that the king was going to go by and they would get a glimpse of the king before he pulled up at Westminster Abbey uh, to, to go into his coronation service. And then I could see Westminster Abbey and, uh, and those who were invited to the coronation uh, included two groups of people. They were the great and the good of society, you know, the, the aristocracy and the, the famous, the influential. But there were also the poor and the, <coughs> and the weak gathered to see the crowning of their king. And the church was prepared. Everyone had got their clothes, you know, their best clothes on, ready for this special ceremony where the king would enter and he would be crowned in the nation. And um, then the doors of Westminster Abbey opened and it was like the, the king, Jesus, entered. But it wasn't his return. It wasn't at the end of time. It was the presence of Jesus came into Westminster Abbey. And I could see the presence of Jesus because I could see almost like a golden dust in the outline of a lion. But then it was also invisible. And as the doors opened, <clears throat> it was like a hush fell on, on those who were gathered there and a hush had fallen on the streets. And what had turned from nervous, excited joy just turned to just a bowing down and a reverence and just as this as the presence of Jesus came into Westminster Abbey suddenly everyone's heart was quieted everyone's heart was stilled every eye just was both looking at him but also 
weeping with delight some were some were perhaps feeling a sense of regret but it wasn't a, a condemnation it was like ah oh, he's here everything's going to be all right why did i exist like that before and as as the lion in golden dust outline moved through the church he would just pause with individuals and speak into their heart what they needed to hear and when when he arrived at the front the whole room just just bowed down and fell to its knees and it was like we as a we as a nation suddenly said this nation belongs to you this nation is yours you are our king and we bow before you and i knew from that moment that then everything was right in the country and then all the things that flow from the blessings and benefits of the kingship of Jesus could happen and so I knew after that moment where we acknowledged his kingship and we crowned him as king we began to send ships to other nations carrying aid and mercy and help and wisdom we began to find all the solutions to the problems in society but what happened it was a freely surrendered theocracy nobody was beating anybody over the head saying you must worship him you must bow down as we read in Daniel chapter 3 it wasn't a coerced or a manipulated or a controlled forcing to acknowledge Jesus it was the freely surrendered giving of lives to God that we see in Nebuchadnezzar and and i think that is what god is calling us to pray into being and i want to pull out one thing about how we can do that right now from this chapter 4 you know how how does nebuchadnezzar willingly yield his heart to god how how does daniel and all his captive fellow hebrews how do they make that happen Well I think there's one one virtue that is pulled out in this uh narrative in chapter 4 that I think God is calling us to put in place in our lives as his church that I think will be transformative over the heart of our nation, over the heart of our communities and over the heart of our households. And what you find in chapter 4 is almost a forensic analysis of a virtue which the flip side of that virtue is highlighted for us in the life of Nebuchadnezzar and the virtue that I'm going to show you that I think God is calling us to establish in our lives is one of humility and the flip side of humility is what we see in the in the experience of Nebuchadnezzar is pride And what happens in this whole episode is Nebuchadnezzar is disturbed by another dream. And in the dream he sees a massive tree that gets cut down by a celestial being, a holy watcher as is described in the scripture, is cut down to a stump. And the uh, and Daniel comes in 
and he basically says, Nebuchadnezzar, you are that massive tree and that massive tree is your kingdom. And God has decreed that you are going to lose your kingdom until you acknowledge, verse 25, that the Most High has sovereignty over the kingdom of mortals and gives it to whom he will. Daniel comes in and he, he gives the interpretation says, God has decreed that, that this is going to happen to you. And then in verse 28, we find that it does. Verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 29, at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king said, is this not magnificent Babylon? which I have built as a royal capital by my mighty power and for my glorious majesty. Verse 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, the kingdom has departed from you. Nebuchadnezzar surveys his kingdom and he says to himself, is not this magnificent Babylon which I have built by my mighty power and for my glorious majesty. He doesn't heed the words of the dream. He looks over everything and he says, wow, haven't I been amazing? Haven't I done so incredibly? And he speaks in pride and straight away a voice comes from heaven and says, the kingdom has departed from you. And Nebuchadnezzar loses everything for a time and the seven times that it talks about really is the time of completion until God's purposes are fulfilled and the fulfillment of God's purposes are, are that he acknowledges that he really is subject to the kingship and sovereignty of the most high God and what happens is he he's driven away uh, verse 33 from human society he, he lives like an animal. You know, it's almost like an Old Testament version of the parable of the prodigal son. He, his body is bathed with the dew of heaven. He lives in the open air. He, he has long hair, like many of us will have because we're in lockdown. Um, his fingernails grow like bird's claws. Uh, and until he gets to the place, verse 34... And he goes back into first person describing his testimony, his experience. When that period ended, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. I blessed the Most High. I praised and honoured the one who lives forever. For his sovereignty is an everlasting sovereignty and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. What do I want to pull out of this? I want to pull out of this two things. Nebuchadnezzar finally learns the lesson that God really rules over the kingdoms of the world. And he is restored when he acknowledges the lordship and kingship of God. If you look down history, time and again, we see the truth that empires come and go, kingdoms of earth rise and fall, but the kingdom of God really does endure forever. You know, nobody would have believed in the third, fourth, fifth century that the Roman Empire would not last forever and ever. Their power felt 
un, unrivaled. They ruled over everything. And yet that empire fell. You know, I imagine to myself that if you were living through the 1930s, 1940s, early 1940s, you might have thought, man, who can rival Hitler's power? Who can rival the Third Reich? Who can rival what is rising? It seems unquenchable. And yet it fell. You know, I think to myself, what are the empires at work in the world today? You know, uh, they are really being challenged and questioned. You know, who would have thought that last year we came out of the European Union 10 years ago? <laughs> I mean, some people may, to, may have. But, but empires rise and fall, but the kingdom of God lasts forever. Let's apply this into our own lives. What seems so powerful, which is not godly in our own lives, and I'm telling you, that will bow the knee at some point to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You know, in our nation at this time, our, our authorities that we live under, our governing authorities, are not leading us to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But I tell you what, their power will rise and fall and God's kingdom will last forever. Do you know why? Because that kingdom is built on the one who was resurrected, who started a new kingdom, which will never fade, which will last for eternity, and which we are in by faith if we place our trust in Jesus. It's a kingdom which started with one, the firstborn of all creation, and which you and I enter by faith, and which will never ever fade. And that is built on the foundations of the resurrected one who will never taste death, never taste loss again. And what we have here is, is the humbling of the Babylonian king until he acknowledges God. And I just want to say, you know, applying this on an individual level to my own life, you know, even as I walk with God, you know, one, one of the challenges in uh, um, technologized professional, you know, Western society is that we can do some stuff without the presence of God. And one of the challenges, I think, for all of us who follow Jesus is to stay moment by moment in step with what it means to follow his lordship. And what it means to follow his lordship is listening to his voice all the time and obeying it. It means living in dependency upon his presence in every moment. You know, and I, I, I'm, you know, quite clever, <laughs> you know, as many of you are. But I know that my ways are so poor, are so feeble, are so inadequate compared to his ways. And so what happens is I need to learn to live my life in utter dependency, in what I would say is humility to, to learn dependence on him, which is where I crucify any pride that I'm, I might take in my earthly strengths or gifts or capabilities to say, no, it only works as I walk in dependency on your voice, on your presence in your ways. And, and what happens, I've learned in my life following Jesus, is that the Lord keeps me on a tight leash <laughs> because every time or, or let me apply this in a certain way. We might say, all of us know that pride is bad and humility is, is good. Do we, do we agree with that? Absolutely. But what does pride look like? It means that when we do really well, when we're flushed with success, 
that's the moment we get to our knees and we say, Lord, you have to speak to us now. When I'm doing well, not just when I'm doing badly and I'm crying out to you for, for a, a kind of you know, survival dependency, is when I am flushed with success, when I'm doing really well, when your favour is on me, that I'm going to get to my knees and go to, go to the posture of prayer and dependency and say, now is the moment where I lean in ever closely for what your voice is saying, above all the voices that are good and all of my own capabilities and intellect. And I say, Lord, I have to do what you are saying. I have to partner with what the Father is doing, which is what Jesus did. And I have to, I have to yield my, my own ways when I'm doing well to submit to your voice. Someone um, once said that humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. And what humility is, when we are doing well, that we bow the knee of our hearts to submit to his ways and his voice. And let me just put ourselves in, in, in a couple of scenarios just to challenge us on this. Can you imagine if suddenly the cabinet office phoned up you and said, can you come and advise us because you have extra special expertise that we need to help us through this crisis right now. And you get helicoptered up to 10 Downing Street, right into the, the heart of governmental decision-making and authority. And you're sort of looking around thinking, hey, wow, I'm, 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 pretty, I'm pretty cool here. You know, I've got some things to offer. Would we in that moment be flushed with success and just thinking, wow, haven't I done well? Aren't my gifts really wonderful? Which is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar thought to himself as he surveyed the, his kingdom. Or would we say, thank you, Lord, that you are putting me in this position. Every, every single attribute that I have of my mental faculties, every gift, every anointing, every bit of wisdom is a gift from you and I'm going to freely give it and I'm going to point at every moment back to you and say, you are the most high God, you're the God that I serve, I'm going to serve these people as well as I can and I'm going to let them know at every possible moment that the one, the reason I'm here and, and how I'm going to feel and carry myself afterwards is because he is the reason that he's placed me in this position for this time. I don't know if this makes any sense to you, but I just, I just think to myself, you know, the subversive virtue of humility is how we transform a nation. And I, I just think in this moment of time as God's church, can we learn to be like Nebuchadnezzar? Can we learn to yield and kneel our hearts to him so that if we are you know, who knows where this is going, but I do believe the church is going to come into a very influential position in society again. And could we not do what the Victorian church did? And in the, in the flush of, you know, Christian, 
Christendom colonialism, take our eyes off the voice of God, take our ears away from the presence of the Lord and just get into our own stuff and then inadvertently mix culture with the presence of God as we serve and as we expand the kingdom at that time. Can we learn from history and yield in humility so that when we come into an influential position in our communities, or even in our homes, you know, I tell you what, if, you, if we want to influence the atmosphere of our home, homes, the best way of doing that is serving and bowing low, <laughs> you know, because people notice after a while. They do notice after a while. And we cannot, we cannot expect to transform the heart of our nation if there's any pride in the heart of the church. But if we learn the beautiful virtue of humility before God. If we can be like Nebuchadnezzar and say, we bless the Most High, we praise and honour the one who lives forever. His sovereignty is the one we're living for. We're really, really, really living for. Then I tell you what, that is going to be noticed in a society and a day and age where self-promotion, self-actualization, self-elbowing you know, everybody out the way just needs to needs to change and and is being challenged by what we're finding ourselves in you know did anybody ever think in the autumn of 2019 do you remember last year when the governmental deliberations over brexit were just at their fiercest where was humility where was somebody saying to the other side of the parliamentary aisle where were the people saying do you know what? That's actually a really good idea. Maybe we should work together and use their ideas to make the right decision for the nation. There's just there was no humility. And, and I think th this is something that for us as the church to sow into community, to sow into our households, and to sow into the nation, this is our way that we pave the way for the transformation of the heart of our nation. For us to see an alignment of our national heart, then we've got to get this nailed in the church of Jesus and in our own, in our own patch. You know, let's just challenge ourselves. You know, does anybody ever think, you know, when they do really well, why aren't, they, why aren't people giving me the credit for it? Well, that's pride. You know, does anybody think, why haven't I been asked onto that team or onto that committee? Or why haven't I been promoted in my workplace and that person? That's just pride speaking. You know, whereas we, we get to stand back and recognise the biggest story at play, which is that em earthly empires, earthly kingdoms rise and fall. His kingdom lasts forever. And his kingdom has no place... It really has no place for any heart to be fixed on anything else other than him. The kingdom of God, a kingdom mindset, looks like a freely surrendered heart. Humility is dependency on his voice and following him. And, and I just think that in this period that we're in, God is, God is after our hearts. He really is after our hearts to depend on him in every moment, in every situation. And not even out of principle, but, but in his presence. 
that we say, Lord, what's your voice? What are you saying? And that we learn the sound of his voice and we say, unless you speak, I'm not, I'm not going to move. I'm not going to decide. I need to lean in for you to speak. That we would be, as the church of God, like Nebuchadnezzar, that we would bless the Most High. That we would say, verse 37, now we, the church of Jesus, we, Chanctonbury, praise and extol and honour the King of heaven. For all his works are truth and his ways are justice. He is able to bring low those who walk in pride. James chapter 4. God gives grace to the humble and resists the proud. You know, God is looking for our hearts in this moment and let's give them to him. You know, and, and I, I just, why don't you stand to your feet and I just want to just pray over us. <laughs> I'm just going to stand to my feet and um, just pray over us just for a few moments, just as we um, come into close. And Father, we love this country and we love our communities and we love our households. And we just want to say, Lord, let us respond and learn from what you did in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Let us learn from the humility of Daniel, who served his king, who served his ruling authorities. He bowed low, knowing that your kingdom is above all. And Lord, we just confess, let there be no place in our hearts for pride. And we choose to submit in every moment to your ways. We choose to take up our cross and die to ourselves. And we choose to enter your kingdom, which is where we fix the eyes of our hearts on your ways, on your glorious reign and your glorious rule, on your glorious uh, lordship and authority. And we just want to bless our communities to find the freeing, the freeing way that surrendering to Jesus really, really feels and really looks like. We just speak over our villages, find Jesus, find in your hearts today the lordship of Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you just woo people everywhere across our land to the kingship of Jesus? And we speak across this nation. Would you return to the Lord? Would you, in governmental authority, in royal authority, in church authority, would you just return to the ways of Jesus? Would you restore us as a nation? We're looking for you, Lord. We love to bow before you. We bow before you now and let humility just transform the heart of this nation forevermore in the name of Jesus. And I just want to bless you now, wherever you are. If we were in church, I would just say, come on, who is up for this? Who is there? And I just want to just release now the Spirit of God to convict us of places in our hearts and to fill us with anointing and authority and fill us with the voice of God that we would know and hear and obey the will of God in this moment and at this time. And so would you be blessed in the name of Jesus? And I just say, you know, uh, from my own place, you're doing so well, Chanctonbury. <laughs> it's a wild time. But this is the moment where we go deep. This is the place where when we come out of this, that we can really say, you know, pride, pride doesn't play a part in my life. We are, we are the humble. We're the ones who love to bow low. We love to serve. We love to be associated with the lowly and the weak and the poor. And, and, and we love to serve. We love to give 
give credit to others. We love to point to other people and let that characterize the church that God is forming in our hearts, that we can be able to be influential without being seduced by the trappings of the things of this life. And may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you. May he turn the light of his countenance towards you. And today and every day, may he fill you with his peace, his wonderful peace. Be blessed. Have an awesome week. Be filled with the glory of God. Let's live lives where, where we know that God is a jealous God and shares his glory with no other. But we say, we're so hungry for your glory. And be lifted up in our lives. Be lifted up in our lives. And would you go in peace to love and serve the Lord in the name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, in their homes. And if we were together, we would bear hug. In their homes. And all God's people said together, Amen. Amen.